Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right. Now to the studio. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm your host, Wade Padgett. And I'm your other host, Tane Kell. Today, we have a special short edition of the podcast dedicated mostly to our loyal lawyer listeners. You know, they probably know who they are, but I know a couple, and I know some loyal listeners that aren't even lawyers. Don't you have one working in your circuit? Uh, Yeah. Like that loves our podcast. And you, are you talking about our, our amazing court administrator, Christopher Hanser? You mean the guy who used to work at the AOC and has appeared on the, on the podcast? He is an FOP, friend of the podcast. He That's is. right. But so what we're going to do, and Tane and I are going to share our, you want to say it, Tane? Our pet peeves. The things that make us a little nutty. Yeah, the things Er. that are like fingernails on the chalkboard for us as trial judges. And so when we speak at educational events and things like that, CLEs, law school classes, lawyers really want to know what sort of things um, drive us crazy. And so one of the things that that Tane and I have discovered is that we have some personal pet peeves and some – maybe even common between us pet peeves. So today we have a podcast primarily presenting pet peeves. There's a lot of peas in that sentence. Periodically popping up persistently. You can tell that Tane wrote this. I mean, he actually walked me into that. I noticed the peas before <laughs> I even finished the pea that, sentence. That's right, Wade. We call it our Pet Peeves Podcast. So let's get to it. All right, Wade, I'm going to open the door and let you go to your first pet peeve my, right out of the chute. My first pet peeve is excessive pleading. So you know, what's, what's that, Wade? You know, when you file for the divorce and you, it, it's not sufficient to say the uh, marriage is irretrievably broken and the other spouse is guilty of adultery, it's the other... Sp- no, I need deets. I need the details, man. I need the 411. Tell me everything about it. Of course, you don't, actually, under the Civil Practice <laughs> Act. You can, you can have it at your hearing. You can have it at your deposition. But where it doesn't need to appear is that public document that your kids are going to have to deal with forever, where you outlined that on June 3rd, they met at a hotel. And on June 7th, they left work and, you know, did the hibbity-dibbity at the dobbity-dobbity. I mean, you know. I do not want to see what happened at the dobbity-dobbity. But you just, I'm just saying that does not have to be in your pleadings. It's abusive. It is, it is. It, it, solely done with intent to intimidate. Yeah, it, it is. It's a trial tactic and it's a coercive uh, trial tactic. And sometimes it's very client driven. Um, you know, the, the lawyer is taking their cues from the client to try to humiliate the spouse or the soon to be ex spouse or try to gain some advantage by doing that. And it's, 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 it's a bad form, but it's B really kind of prohibited and frowned upon by the civil practice act anyway. Right, Wade? Absolutely. And if you ever wanted to, you have the ability to sua sponte, 
enter a motion to strike. And you do that, don't you? Wait, I from have. From time to time. Tell, tell, tell the folks basically what that looks like. Basically, you, I verbally say it and then I follow up after and I order that the either the pleadings be, be filed under seal or that those uh, particular offending paragraphs be stricken because they're not part of notice pleading. And um, I think they're done solely to intimidate, which really is just way inappropriate. Yeah, and I suppose you could also order the party to file an amended pleading, whatever it is, and then you could place the original under, under seal. 100%. Too. Yeah, because I always like to put the work back on them, you know. So, yeah. So uh, we can make them do that. All right, so, so Tane, there's my number one. Give me your number one, and, and we shared this one. <sighs> Wade. This one has ground my gears since day one on the bench. Because, you know, I was an old civil trial lawyer. And this one, I just don't get. Mark your exhibits. Mark your exhibits. Mark your exhibits. If you like it, you should have put a sticker on it. That's exactly the way I feel, Wade. Isn't that a Beyonce song? Beyonce stole that from me. So <laughs> I, I just don't get this. So particularly in civil cases, but really in criminal cases as well. You know by the time you get to trial what evidence you wish to introduce. At the very least, put a sticker on it. And, and here's another thing. Have a sticker if you haven't put a sticker on it. Like, the thing that really aggravates me is we're in the middle of a hearing or maybe even a trial, and the person with the exhibit in hand says, I'd like to show the witness what I'm going to mark as exhibit number three. And then they walk over to the court reporter and say, do you have any stick plaintiff stickers? And the court reporter says, I don't have those. Then they look to the clerk and they're like, do you have any plaintiffs? And I don't have those. And then we go on this search and finally. Do they say it just like that? They do. And then you say, and then they say, okay, does anybody have a pen? And they have to walk back over to their counsel table and they have to write exhibit number three. And then they go up and they, they walk up to the witness and they give it to them. And then they're like, oh, wait, that's not exhibit three. I already inter introduced exhibit three. That's exhibit number four. Do you have another? I mean, you know what I'm talking uh, about. Oh, wait. my God. I mean, you're and, making. And 15 minutes have gone by because prior to trial, we didn't put a blank sticker on that exhibit. So we had a former DA who said, who told me they did not want to pre-mark their exhibits because they were worried the jury would infer something if they didn't introduce all the consecutive numbers. And I understand that. I don't think that's a legitimate concern. However, you could still put the sticker <laughs> blank with no number on it on the document. And then here's another thought. Go ahead and number the stickers ahead of trial and then peel them off and put them on the documents in consecutive order. Because there's no real reason that the jury or I should have to sit there and wait for you to write the number on the sticker. And I even had a lawyer one time say, every single exhibit, what number am I on? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you keep on? Here's the, here's the deal. And I told him this in trial and I, I, I tr generally don't try to embarrass lawyers, but, but we were in the middle of a lengthy hearing already and it was taking an inordinate amount of time. And I said, here's what I suggest you do counsel. I'm going to tell you that you were on exhibit number 10, write a 10 on the sticker. And then the next sticker that's attached on that same sheet, 
write 11 on that. <laughs> and then that way you'll know your next exhibit is exhibit number 11. And he was like, that's a good idea, Judge. I'm like, yeah, you know, 21 years of trial practice and 14 years on the bench have taught me write the number on the next sticker. Do you ever have people want to go like 1, 2, 2A, 2B, 2C? Yeah, why are we doing that? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And, and we have people who have introduced exhibits that have no stickers. Or the other thing I love is we start, we start um, labeling stickers with letters. This is exhibit A. No, it's not. Because there are an unlimited number of numbers, but there are 26 alphabetical. We could do two A's. Like no, A, C, A, B, B. And then we're not doing A, 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 and B, 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 and C, C, C. Or should we do A, B, A, C, A, D? I don't know. Or A, 1, and then A, 2. No, I, we're not doing that. We're just not doing Anyway, I get I get a little heated about this. It's nothing. But but here's what it comes down to. you got to sound like, get off my lawn, guy. I know. I'm starting to shake my fist. And so... Anyway, but but this is what it's really all about. Preparation. Preparation. And and, and f- my feeling, and you and I have talked about this before, I frequently was not the smartest guy in the courtroom. In fact, I might even say always was not the smartest guy in the courtroom. But I could always be the best prepared. And that's all I'm asking. Just be well prepared. So that kind of brings you to your next pet peeve to a certain degree, doesn't it, Tane? Yeah, it really does. So tell the folks what the next uh, get off my lawn guy has to say. PowerPoint. You know, you're against PowerPoint. Look, I'll admit that I came up in an era where all we had to go on was something I hand wrote on a chart or maybe a photograph that I had enlarged, you know, so the jury could see it. And we didn't have things like PowerPoint. But I have to say that just because PowerPoint exists, it doesn't mean that you have to use it. You know, my wife has a saying, Tane. We, I think we've put it on the podcast before. What's that? Just because they sell it in your size doesn't mean you need to own it. Amen. Some people just shouldn't use PowerPoint. Some people don't know how to use PowerPoint. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you've never taken any kind of a course in how to use PowerPoint, you should be banned. From what using would you PowerPoint. say is the biggest offense that for people who know how to make it flip? What's the biggest offense that you see committed? Reading from your PowerPoint. Well, Not I don't awesome. like that. At the, I don't like that at the Rotary Club. I don't like it at the. I don't like it ever. Because if you put it on a PowerPoint, I read it before you read it to me. Like I'm already done reading it. You can move on to the next slide now. And here's the other thing. PowerPoint is supposed to be an enhancement. PowerPoint's an enhancement. It's not, it's not a, um, it's a tool. It's not supposed to be the end all be all. So here's the other problem with PowerPoint. If you put 18 lines of print at, at, you know, seven font, you know, seven point font on a slide, I'm not going to read it just the same as I'm not going to read it if you hand that to me on a piece of paper. So you're wasting your time doing that. So anyway, what I'm trying to get at is poor use and overuse of PowerPoint is just ridiculous and people need to just, just stop it. Have you seen effective use of PowerPoint, honestly? I've seen some incredible use of PowerPoint. And you know what that usually entails? Hmm. It usually entails a PowerPoint slide that shows a piece of evidence. And then the lawyer talks about it. Or a PowerPoint slide that has maybe five words on it. 
And then the lawyer elaborates on those words because those are powerful images that stick in the minds of jurors and they carry them back with them to the jury room. If you put up that slide with 800 words on it, that didn't go back to the jury room with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't remember anything that you that you tried to do with that PowerPoint slide. And then that sort of goes to a pet peeve of yours that dovetails into this. Well, it's actually two lawyers who cannot use the evidence presentation technology in the courtroom. And, and has, has COVID brought that home to you in the same way that it has to me? So everybody listening, if you're a judge or if you're a lawyer or whatever, you've got a story about a zoom hearing or 10 or 20 where you saw like, like the top of somebody's head or the, you know, the, 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 there's a thousand and one. I'm not naming anybody's name, but I told you the story last night, Wade, where there was a gentleman who was the lawyer who was doing zoom using his cell phone basically like a FaceTime call. And every time he spoke, he thought he had to put the phone to his ear so that we all got to look inside of his ear every time he spoke. And while also suppressing laughter, I had to rule on um, the things he was talking about. So lawyers, if you're listening, there's a couple of things you need to be aware of. When you're using technology in a courtroom, you may well want to turn off your screensaver because every time it comes on, you lose connection via Bluetooth, and then you have to reconnect. And so you're finally, it's your turn. So you set it up before lunch, and then lunch happened. And then you come back, and you're going to do your closing argument, and you're not connected. And everybody's looking at you as you sweat trying to be your own IT department. <laughs> Folks, you just there's a few things you've just got to do. And, and, and being smooth with tech, if you're, not, if you're not smooth with it, don't use it. Go old school. Get the blown up photograph or the flip chart or whatever, do arrows and circles and, and, and tell your story, however you need to talk. But just because it is, it is, you actually look far worse in my humble opinion, using a technology that you are not fluent in. Amen, Wade. And, 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 and then you would, if you just used a flip chart or something. Absolutely. And the jury will appreciate you more by being who you are and being old school. And, and, and that sort of dovetails into a larger topic that we wanted to talk about. And that's just general preparedness lawyers. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that it's a lot. I didn't, I practiced law. It's been a minute, but I mean, I was by myself. I didn't have a huge staff and, and getting prepared for all these hearings and court hearings and trials. It was tough. But at the same time, it was a point of pride. I just didn't want to be unprepared. And there's, there's all kind of examples, but, but one that jumps in my mind has to do with financial affidavits and child support worksheets and domestic relation cases. Amen. Yeah. I, I need some evidence. I need evidence. And guess what a financial statement is? It is an evidence. So if I make a finding of your income, I had evidence to support that finding. And if I needed to make a deviation, I had evidence because of your bills to support that finding. If you don't file it, or if it's just woefully inadequate, it is, it's, it's, it's of no use. And And I can't tell you the number of lawyers that come in and say, well, this, my client met with my office staff and I thought this was correct. Yeah, that's that's one that makes me insane. It's like this is not a document for your client to fill out. This is something for you and your client to sit down. Because how many times, Wade, do you get it and they say that they spend uh, $2,000 a month on vacation? They're like, oh, I didn't know that was monthly. 
Oh, that was every well car a whole, tax whole year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, vehicle maintenance. Yeah, right. And you're like, hold up, man. <laughs> what kind of vehicle are you yeah, driving? You're yeah, spending two thousand dollars a month on, on maintenance. You might want to think about getting another vehicle. And 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 the other thing about uh, the domestic relations financial affidavit is, oh by the way, it's required by statute. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and probably any standing rules you might have. Yeah, but talk to Pete. Talk talk to him about jury demands in domestic cases. Okay, so so this is this is one of those things, and I, I've pretty much fixed this problem uh, in my local jurisdiction. Is um, lawyer comes to uh, to the the day when the I guess day of reckoning is coming where. Uh, the case gets called for the bench trial, and lawyer is unprepared. Not to mention client, but lawyer is unprepared, and so the lawyer says during you know the the calendar call or however it comes up, oh judge, well this morning I filed a jury trial demand in my client's divorce case, uh, and, and and here's how I fix that because I I know you don't want a jury trial. <laughs> If you do, you've probably just committed malpractice because especially if you didn't talk to your client about all the ramifications of asking for a jury trial in a domestic relations case, particularly a divorce case. But here's how I fix that. I say, okay, well, why don't you take a break for about 15 minutes and get me your request to charge and I'm going to call downstairs and get a jury Uh now, there may or may not be a jury downstairs awaiting, or I may say I'll call over to the state court and see if they have some jurors they can send our way. But I hear a lot of lawyers in that circumstance scrambling, going, oh, oh, but judge, um, we, we're not ready today. And I said, well, you came here for the he- for the final hearing, and you, the only thing that's changed is you've asked for a jury. I'm going to get you a jury, so you know, get ready to present your evidence. And uh, that, that has taken care of a lot of that. But, but that's, just a, that's just a factor of being unprepared. So, Tane, um, you've got another one here that that was um, probably as much anything as professionalism. Yeah. Yeah, this is a professionalism issue. I do not like it when lawyers talk about the other lawyer. Well, Mr. So-and-so has, you know, made an argument that he knows is spurious, and we've had a lot of conversations, and he's been unprofessional and all that. Look, that it's not personal. It sh- or, I'm sorry, it shouldn't be personal. So really, the other attorney's name shouldn't ever be mentioned. The allegations that are being made in court are the positions of the plaintiff and the defendant or the petitioner and the respondent. And to the extent that they're relevant, at least from my standpoint, that's how they professionally ought to be uh, presented. Absolutely. And, and You're so, the advocate. Yeah. And so you say the petitioner is arguing this or the, the defendant is arguing that or whatever, and it shouldn't be personal. And so when I start hearing lawyers using each other's names, uh, I know that they've let it become personal. So my next one, Tane, really has a little bit to do with practice, probably more than pet peeve. Um, I will generally not grant ex parte custody of children, et cetera, in a domestic case without a hearing. I want to give the other side an opportunity to be heard. Now, they may have to have a hearing tomorrow. They may have to have a hearing in 48 hours, but I want them to know that the the question of custody of their children is being decided without just signing an ex parte order. And I'll tell you why. It's because I've been lied to a lot in this job. Yeah. We have had people who have told their lawyer, I think that I think that's what they really told their lawyer, 
that X, Y, and Z happened when in fact, that's not at all what happened. And in fact, there was this whole other backstory that I'm, I'm convinced the lawyer didn't know, but it turned out that the other person had already gotten a custody order or whatever. So in 2021, unfortunately, I just don't feel comfortable taking your word for it. So I am going to give you a hearing. I may give you an expedited hearing, but it's not going to be ex parte, except in the most extreme circumstances. I, I agree with you 100%, Wade. I think, um, and, and that doesn't just that doesn't just go for domestic cases. I mean, we'll have people come and ask for a temporary restraining order in a civil case, you know, sometimes an equitable action. And I'll simply say, I think we can get all these parties together by tomorrow or by Friday or whatever. And so I will set your hearing down, you know, and you, you make all attempts to make, give notice. And we will also make attempts to give notice to the parties. And if they show up, they show up. And if they don't, they don't. And, but um, I am much more comfortable with that than I am a pure ex parte. Absolutely. Tell people about how much you and I have actually spent time talking to lawyers, judges, and others about knowing and or following the conflict rules. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's a rule for a reason. The, the, the rules, the conflict rules, the Uniform Superior Court rules on conflicts um, are there to help lawyers sort things out so that the court doesn't have to get involved in telling you which case trumps another case. And what I get most often that is the most frustrating is I specially set a, a, a final hearing in a divorce case for nine o'clock and I get a conflict letter that says, well, I have a hearing in magistrate court at 8.30 that morning, so I'll appear for the final hearing in the divorce case whenever I get finished in magistrate court. And mine's been specially set for three months, and the magistrate court thing just came up. And, you know, I say, oh, well, great. I guess all of us will just wait until you finish in magistrate court then. And that's not what the rule says. That's not what you're supposed to do. It's, it's maddening. And, and when you have those conflicts and, and lawyers take cases after knowing there's a conflict, cause you, certain people I think are hired because there is a conflict. Um, I will tell you forever and ever and ever throughout my career, both as a lawyer and as a judge, I would, I would have told you adamantly that there was a rule that says, if you know you have a conflict, don't take the, don't, don't be retained in that case. Actually, you told me one time that there was a rule to that effect. And I spent like half a day looking for it one time <laughs> and thinking that I was going to cite it to an attorney who had said, I just took this case and it, I've looked too. Cause it, while you were looking, I was looking and, and, and that's actually not a rule, but should be, it really should be because I mean, that's really, Taking a taking employment as a lawyer when you know you have a conflict for a preset hearing doesn't just it doesn't make good sense. But unless, of course, your goal is to continue the hearing. Mm -hmm. And frequently, I believe that that is what it I is. Do too. The second thing that that's very frustrating to me is lawyers who will cite things to me that aren't even a part of the conflict rules like, well, judge, we can't specially set our hearing for that day because I already have depositions scheduled. Oh, my God. I hear that all the time. All and I'm the like, time. look, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer. Uh, you mediation. Yeah, who did civil practice. I know how hard sometimes it is to schedule a deposition or a mediation or whatever, but it's not in the conflict rules that I can't specially set a hearing for a day that you have a deposition or a mediation schedule. 
So let me, so that we don't make this long, I want to get to a couple more and then we're going to wrap this up and, yeah. and turn it over to our listeners. Um, one is not, I guess my next one is, is, is not having jury charges conform to the evidence. Of course, there's always the he's and the she's or the plurals and the singulars. I mean, that's, I can get through that. That's not what I'm talking about. For example, if you have an aggravated assault case, there's about 112 different ways to commit aggravated assault. Right. But the re law requires that the jury be charged on the manner as alleged in the indictment. That's right. And if you don't conform your charges to the manner as it is alleged in the indictment, it is reversible error. Now, the pattern charge is wrong. So, well, not wrong. The pattern charge is only one of the 1,200 ways you can commit aggravated assault. So if this, the, the indictment says committed aggravated assault by shooting him, it would be wrong to say that in the jury charge that one of the ways you can prove aggravated assault is by pointing a deadly weapon at another person. Mm -hmm. That's just wrong. And well, so it, it's, and it's confusing and it's a waste of time and jury charges are already, already entirely too long. So at, at, in, at the end of the day, know that law. This probably goes back to a preparedness issue, honestly. It does. But, but at the end of the day, you've got to know that law, especially if you're defending your client or, or prosecuting an individual. You should know that's the law, and you should handle it accordingly. Well, and it becomes extremely important because I, I, I'll give you a, a real-world example. I had a lawyer in a criminal case ask me to give a a charge, um, and, and I won't get specific, but essentially it would have negated a defense in the case because it talked about criminal negligence, which there was none in this case. And in fact, the defendant's defense was accident. And the jury easily could have thought, well, if he was criminally negligent, then he can still be guilty of this offense. And, you know, accident's mm -hmm. not a good defense. And, and so fortunately I caught it but but this was the lawyer asking me to give a charge that would have negated a, a potential defense. And so you just have to be really careful about that sort of thing because it can have really important cons consequences. You know, jury trials are so interesting that, that judges are real busy in the beginning and real busy in the end. But, but probably the single most reversed issue is a jury charge, which I think the jurors do not listen to. Mm -hmm. And they don't consider, all, you know, by the ands or the ors. But appellate judges and lawyers really do. Mm -hmm. And so they, those are a lot of our reversible errors come from not sloppy, but maybe oversights and jury charges. So, Tane, why don't you wrap up this first, this first session of our new, uh, our new uh, gig that we will call <laughs> Pet Peeves, at least for now. Sure. Well, the last one of these you and I have talked about many, many times, and that is not at least going through the motions of preparing a proposed jury verdict form. Now, I know a lot of times that preparing a jury verdict form can be really complex. In civil cases, sometimes they're even more complex than in criminal cases. And sometimes for us as judges, when there are lesser included offenses and all of those things in a criminal case, it's really complicated. But at least do us the courtesy of submitting what you're asking us for the verdict to look like before we go to the the difficulty of trying to craft an appropriate verdict form. Tame, we've talked about it that that when you have a lesser included offense, especially in a murder case, the verdict form can save or complicate your verdict. Absolutely. So, folks, here's 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 sort of the the idea. Tane, you feel better? 
man, I just feel really good getting some of that off my chest, Wade. How about you? Yeah, I mean, it's nice. It, it feels good. And, and, and I do want to sort of open this up and let some of our colleagues, if they would give us not detailed emails, but send us an email at goodjudgepod.com or at, at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, sorry, or check out our website at goodjudgepod.com and tell us what, what, was, the, what was the phrase you used? Grind your gears? What grind your gears? So, I mean, you know, with all, with all, with all uh, apologies to the experts that created that and made it commercially viable and so we don't get sued. Right. Um, tell us what drives you crazy. And I'll be fair, too. For you lawyers out there, if you want to give us a, a few hints about things that we as judges do uh, that really grind your gears, feel free to send those to uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We'll keep you anonymous. I Absolutely. swear we will. Absolutely. So, folks, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. This is a, a labor of love, and, and we really appreciate the time and th that all of you are devoting to listening. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And once this broadcast is over, don't forget to rinse and repeat. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thought before we wrap up this session? <laughs> yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. That's really remarkable. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.